This is Daf Chet in Masechet Megillah. We are on Daf Zayin Amudbet, seven lines from the wide lines, where there's a new Mishnah that's very short. Ein ben Shabbat liyom Kippurim. There's no difference between Shabbat and Yom Kippur. Except for the fact that one of them, the punishment for deliberate desecration of Shabbat, is actually uh, is actually execution, which is done by human beings. The other one, uh, meaning Yom Kippur, the punishment is only in the hands of heaven. It is excision, karet, a punishment, which is a divinely instituted punishment, not one that is carried out by the Betin. The Gemara says, Han inyan tashlumin. So in the, with respect to payment, shavin. they're both the same. Now, what does it mean payment? It means that if a person uh, damages somebody else's property on Shabbat, and in the course of damaging the person's property, they also violate Shabbat. For example, Rashi brings the classic example, if a person lit their friend or their neighbor's uh, grain on fire on Yom Kippur, since he he is uh, liable to karet as a result of his action, he also won't have to pay monetary restitution, just like if he violated Shabbat in the course of damaging his friend's property, he would not have to pay monetary restitution because he would be chayav mitai, would be liable for a death penalty. So it's saying that that's the same with regard to Yom Kippur and Shabbat. So mani matnitin, who is, who is the author of our Mishnah? Rabbi Nechonia ben Akana. It must be Rabbi Nechonia ben Akana. Because we learned in a Baita, Rabbi Nechonia ben Akana, Hayahoseh et Yom Kippur in Shabbat, the Tashlumin, because we learned in a Baita that Rabbi Nechonia said that Shabbat and Yom Kippur are the same with regard to monetary payment. Ma Shabbat nilchayiv ben Afshol patum Tashlumin, just like when it comes to Shabbat, a person is culpable for their soul. In other words, they are subject to death and therefore they are exempt from paying for damages that are incurred in the process of their Chilul Shabbat. Av Yom Kippur in Chayiv ben Afshol patum Tashlumin. So too, even though Yom Kippur, even though there's no physical death, involved because the Bed Din does not impose a death penalty for Yom Kippur. It's only Karait, which is a spiritual penalty that's imposed by Hashem. Still, uh, it's, this, it's a, the equivalent and you would be exempt from monetary payment for damage that was incurred while violating Yom Kippur. We said over there in the Mishnah, anybody who uh, commits a sin that is, uh, carries the penalty of Karait and then is given Makot, is warned by two witnesses that he uh, should not engage in that behavior and if he does, he will get Makot. And then if he receives makot from the Bet Din, he will be exempt from his karet. Because it says regarding makot, regarding the penalty of lashes, that your brother will be humbled uh, to before your eyes. Once he receives the makot, he becomes like your brother again. Meaning that he... These are the words of Rabbi Hananiah ben Gamliel, that makot will exempt the person from karet. Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan said, Chalukin alav chaverav al Rabbi Chanania ben Gamliel. Rabbi Chanania ben Gamliel's colleagues disagreed with him about this. He was a lone opinion, thinking that that karet could be lifted by administering lashes. Amar Ravah said, Amrei berav. They said in the Shiva Rav Tanina, we learned, we already learned in a Mishnah. That in Ben Yom Kippurim the Shabbat, there's no difference between Yom Kippur and Shabbat. Except that one is uh, the the uh, deliberate violation carries a penalty that's carried out by human hands, meaning the the uh, death penalty, and one is only correct. And if you're going to tell me that any person who violates uh, an Isur Karet gets Makot as well. So then there's also, a, there's also a human punishment administered for things that carry a Karet penalty. 
because you're telling me that you can give makot to someone who violated a penalty, something that carries the penalty of karet. So then there becomes no difference, really. Why would, why would the difference be between Yom Kippur and Shabbat that one is, uh, the punishment is bidei adam and one is bidei shamayim? It's not true because we give makot to somebody who violates Yom Kippur as well, according to this. Amav Nachman, Hamani Rabbi Yitzchaki. Who is the opinion represented here? It's Rabbi Yitzchak, the Amar Malkot, Leka. Rabbi Yitzchak is the one who says there is no makot for violations of, uh, of, uh, karet penalties. There's no such thing. And therefore, he would say that the difference between Shabbat and Yom Kippur is that on Shabbat, there is a humanly administered penalty, and on Yom Kippur, there is not. Right? But everyone else apparently would say that, uh, if, that no, that you do administer makot to somebody who violated a karet, a, a sin of karet. Um, and that's what Rav Nachman was saying. He said, really, no, most people agree that, uh, that you do administer makot for, uh, violations of karet, uh, isurim, penalties of, uh, uh, that carry the penalty of karet. It's just only Rabbi Yitzchak says otherwise. And he's the one represented in our Mishnah. The Tan, as we have said in Abraita, Rabbi Yitzchak Omer, Chayavei Kuretot Bechlalayu. All of the Chayavei Kuretot, all of those who received Kuret for their violations were gathered in one category. Why does it emphasize that one who has relations with his sister gets Kuret? To teach you that, that, that somebody who has in, engages in incestuous behavior with his sister gets Kuret, not Malkot. So that's Rabbi Yitzchak's opinion that there is no Kuret for such a, I'm sorry, that there's no makot for such a violation, only karet. We could salvage our Mishnah and say our Mishnah doesn't only follow Rabbi Yitzchak. Our Mishnah does follow the rabbis. And even though the rabbis say that there is makot for violations that carry karet penalty, meaning that you can still administer makot and even possibly free the person from the karet as a result of him receiving the makot, even so they would still subscribe to the language of our Mishnah because the language of our Mishnah means that the main penalty of Yom Kippur is karet and the main penalty of Shabbat is the humanly administered death penalty. That doesn't mean there can't also be makot that is administered as well for Yom Kippur. That's just not the main penalty that it carries. Then that is the conclusion of the sugya. The Mishnah, the next Chet Amud Aleph. There are two ways that a person can make one. Uh, generally speaking, a person makes a net there to restrict their own behavior, but they can also uh, accept upon themselves in the context of a relationship with somebody else that they swear not to benefit from another person. It was a way of rejecting or distancing themselves from that person. They could say, "I refuse. I make a net there. I will not benefit from this person in any way." Or mudarmi menu machal. I won't benefit in any way related to food. Now, what's the difference? Whether you say. It in, the, in a way, mudar ma'achal, mudar mimenu ma'achal, or just mudar mimenu hana'ah, that you refuse to have benefit or you refuse to have food kind of benefit. What's the difference? Walking on their property, or using vessels of theirs that are not related to food preparation. In other words, if you say, I'm only, abst- I'm only uh, making an edda that I will not benefit in any food-related manner from this person, then you're allowed to walk on their property, and you're also allowed to use vessels of theirs that have nothing to do with food preparation. Rashi and Tosavot both point out that's only true if the vessels that you're using that belong to this person are not generally rented out, because if they're rented out for money, then you could say that you're benefiting by saving the money by borrowing the vessel from him, and that money that you save could be used for food, so indirectly it is a kind of benefit of food. But generally speaking, the idea is 
that since you specified that you're only not going to benefit in a way related to food, things that are totally unrelated to food, you'd be, late, you'd be allowed to benefit. Now, obviously, with respect to vessels that are used for food preparation, then you wouldn't be allowed to use this individual's uh, vessels that are used for food preparation, whether you swore not to benefit from the person at all, or you swore not to benefit from them in any way related to food. That would, that would be equal, that you wouldn't be allowed to use their pots and pans, let's say. To reset the regal, walking on their property, why would it be that somebody who swears not to benefit from another person can't walk on their property? People are generally not makpid. They don't care if somebody just walks on their property for, you know, briefly for no reason. This Mishnah is following Rabbi Eliezer who says that you're not allowed even things that generally people let go. People don't care if a person walks on their, uh, on their uh, driveway for a second, walks on their grass for a second. They don't care. Still, when you're mudarana'a, when you're someone who's not allowed to benefit from, uh, from the owner of that grass or the owner of that driveway, um, and even though normally an, a regular person wouldn't even consider that really that they're conferring you a benefit, they wouldn't even care, it doesn't matter. We still say that, they're, that you're not allowed to walk on their property because uh, the fact that um, it's not significant in normal cases, in this case, it becomes significant since there was a neder made. Either the person who owns the property said he's, he doesn't want, he, he prevents you, he makes a neder that you're not allowed to benefit from him, or you're making an idea that you're not allowed to benefit from the owner of the property. Either way, it restricts you from walking on their property at all, according to Rabbi Eliezer. The Mishnah says, We've learned these um, principles in many other Masechtod and Shas. There are two types of uh, voluntary korbanot a person can bring. One is called a neder, one is called a nedavah. The difference is that a neder, you say, I commit myself to bring such and such korban. A nedavah is where you say, this animal will be such and such korban. The difference is, as our Mishnah says, that nedarim chayav yutan. Since you said, I commit to bringing a korban shlamim, let's say, if the korban shlamim you designated gets lost, you gotta, re- you gotta replace it. Whereas, if you designate a particular animal as a nedavah, so then if it gets lost, it's already in the hands of Hashem, so to speak. You, did, you don't have to now replace it because that animal, wherever it is, is a korban. So the implication is that when it comes to Baltachir, to not delaying the bringing of a Koban, uh, they're equal. In other words, that you have a limit, a time limit, and as we learned in, uh, in the past, <coughs> the time limit is, is three holidays, whether they have to be in the right order or it's just three holidays or whatever. But the point is that you have a certain time limit on bringing Korbanot and whether you accepted the obligation on yourself or you designated the Korban in particular, you designated a particular animal, which is called a Nedava, still you have to bring it within the year. You have a time limit within which you're supposed to bring it. Otherwise, it's called Baltachet that you delayed. What's the definition of Nedir? The person says, I take upon myself to bring a burnt offering. What's called a Nedava? If he says, this animal is an Ola. What's the difference between Nedavot? Nedavot Nedavot if a, uh, a neder dies or is stolen or gets lost, you're obligated to replace it because you took the obligation on yourself that the korban was going to be brought. However, when it comes to a, um, a nedava that you designated the particular animal, you didn't take the obligation on yourself. So if they die or they are stolen or lost, you don't have to replace it because you didn't take an obligation on yourself. You just designated the korban and the korban, wherever it is, is a korban, but you don't have control over it anymore. Where do they get this distinction from? The rabbis taught It finds favor To atone for him And that's talking about 
it finds favor for him to atone for him. He's talking about bringing a voluntary korban. Rabbi Shimon Omer, et she'alav chayav b'chayuto. What is on him, he's obligated in replacing. Vet she'no chayav, she'no alav. What is not on him, eno chayav b'chayuto, he doesn't have to replace. My mashma, what does that mean? Rabbi Amar Rabbi Tzchak, what does that mean? Rabbi since it says lechaper alav, to atone for on him, it's saying since he said alai, it's on me, keman dita'ina kafedame, it's like he puts it on his own shoulders, he accepting upon himself the responsibility to make sure that this korban is brought even if it's... Uh uh, even if it uh, gets lost or stolen, he has to replace it. Now, Rashi explains, this is the drasha, that uh, when does the person have find favor that his neder has been fulfilled? When he atones, when he that's when it's accepted. But up to the point that the korban is actually offered, he won't be considered acceptable. Meaning that's why it says, in the case of Alav, in the case of the korban that's on him, we have the rule that until the korban is brought in actuality, he's still considered liable and he's not, his obligation has not been satisfied. <clears throat> because he took it upon himself. If he said, this korban is a korban, this animal is a korban, and he didn't take it upon himself, so then if it gets lost, it gets lost. But if he took it upon himself, then he is not considered to be accepted. His, his uh, commitment has not been satisfied until such time as he actually delivers the korban, even if he has to replace it multiple times. The Mishnah says, Ein ben shalosh el korban. There's no difference between a zav who sees two emissions and a zav who sees three, except a korban. A zav is not a, the same thing as a seminal emission. It's a different kind of a liquid that comes out uh, from the genital area of a person, of a man, and it either comes out, uh, if it comes out one time, the halakha is he's treated the same as a balkari, as somebody who had a seminal emission, which is a light one day tum'ah. If, it, if he has two sightings, either on the same day or on consecutive days, then it becomes a zav. <coughs> If he has three, then not only does he have to uh, observe the Tum'ah V'zav, which requires seven clean days, etc., and immersion, but he also has to bring a Korban. The Gemara says, so that there's the two, the two Re'iyot, when a person has seen two or has seen three, the only difference between the two of them is that one has to bring a Korban and one doesn't. In every other respect, they're the same. So that means that with regard to the severity of the Tum'ah, which means even if he's sitting on something and there are ten blankets under him, the bottom blanket will also be Tamei. And it becomes tamay at a very, at a very severe level, and also that he has to count seven clean days. This applies both to the the one who saw two sightings of ziva and one who saw three sightings. Does make a difference? Not even like where do we get this from? The Tanu Rabbanan Rabbi Simai Omer, because Rabbi Simai said, as the rabbis taught, Manakatu Shtaim. Okay, in one pasuk, the Torah says the word refers to the ziva twice and calls him tamay. Shalosh Rukol Tamei. And one case it says it three times and calls him tamay. Ketzad Shtaim Letumav Shalosh Rukoban, which means if he saw two. Sightings of two emissions of ziva, he is tamei, and if three, he has to bring a korban. How do you know it works that way? Maybe it's if he saw two sightings, he has to he becomes tamei, but he doesn't have to bring a korban. And if he sees three, it's a korban instead of the tumah. It doesn't work because once you've seen three, you've already seen two, and when you saw two, you already became tamei. Now. When you see three, you can't remove the tum'ah. You can just add another layer, which is now you have to bring a korban ve'imarshtayim, the korban below the tum'ah. Maybe you'll say it like this. When you see two emissions, you're obligated in the korban, but not the tum'ah. Shalosh, af the tum'ah. Maybe the third one adds the tum'ah. 
in addition to the korban. Think that the Tanakh we learned in the Brayta, because it says the Kohen will atone for the person mizovo from his zav from his zav state. Mikzad zavin mivin korban, because it says mizovo. Some zavin bring a korban, or mikzad zavin en mivin korban, and some of them don't bring a korban. Hakitzad or ashalosh mivi shtaim eno mivi, which means that if if the person saw three sightings of ziva, he has to bring a korban. If he only saw two, he doesn't have to. Oh eno elorab shtaim mivi or ashalosh eno mivi. Maybe you'll flip it around. And say if you saw two emissions, you have to bring it. If you saw three, you don't have to bring. But But since by the time you've seen three, you've already seen two, so that would mean that the obligation kicked in already, and the third emission cannot make it less strict than the first uh, than the first two. So therefore, what you see is that because it says some zavim bring and some don't, we know that that must be the thir- the one who's seen three emissions that brings the korban. Now, you need both of these sources, Rabbi Simai, where he pointed out that in one pasuk it mentions ziva twice, and in one it mentions it three times, showing you that there's a two emissions of, and there's a three emissions of, and you also need mizovo to tell you that somebody who's categorized as a zav doesn't bring, only certain people categorized as a zav bring a korban. Because if you just had Rabbi Simai, because if you just had Rabbi Simai, you would know that there was a difference between two and three, but you wouldn't know what the difference was. And you might have actually thought that maybe the person person who saw two re'iyot brings a korban and the person who sees three becomes tamay but the person who saw two doesn't become as tamay maybe you would have thought that so kamash malan mizavo that's why we need the pasuk of mizavo to show you that oh, that there were that once the person sees two sightings of uh, ziva he becomes a zav completely with regard to tumah only the korban obligation is delayed until he sees a third time. Vi mizovo, and if it just said mizovo lo yadana kamariot, I wouldn't know just from the pasuk of zovo that there's what the different levels of zav are. So kamashmalan do rabisimai. That's why I need rabisimai to tell me that it's two emissions versus three emissions of ziva. Vashadam rad mizovo l'drasha. Now that you've said that mizovo teaches you a drasha that only some zavim bring a korban and not all. Vachita razov mizovo hazav mizovo. When it says when the zav becomes pure from his state of ziva, my drashate. What, what's the drasha over there? It says mizovo. What it's teaching you is that the Zav who counts the clean days, he only has to make sure that his Ziva stopped before he starts counting the clean days. But not that his Nega stopped. Meaning to say that, uh, that if a person has, is in a condition of, ziva, is, uh, of being a Zav and also a Mitzorah, he also has Tzorat, he doesn't have to wait for the Tzorat to pass before he starts counting the clean days as a zav, and he can immerse as to get rid of his ziva status, which lowers the severity of some of his tum'ah, even though he is still at uh, mitzorah, and in other respects he still has tum'ah on him, and he still has problems that have to be dealt with. But he doesn't have to wait for himself to be purely, totally pure. He just has to wait for the ziva to stop, to count his seven days. And then the stringencies of, the ziv, of being a zav, such as that if he touches, if he uh, has contact and moves, a, uh, an earthenware vessel, it becomes tamay automatically, or the idea that he's a mila if he sits on something, even if he's very high up, all the stuff all the way down becomes tamay, and so on. This could be alleviated um, if, he goes, if he counts seven clean days and then goes to uh, immerse, even though the uh, even though the mitzvah status would still be in, in, you know, enforced. Now, it says, mizovo v'safar, that he has to count seven days, which teaches you that even a Zav 
who is only, has only had two emissions, still has to count the seven clean dates. Now you might say, Valodino. You say it's obvious because since we see that Zav who saw two emissions has the same severity of Tum'ah as Zav who saw three, so why shouldn't he need seven clean days? Should be obvious. So, but we turn to Amud Bet. We have an example of this from the case of Nida because in Nida, after her seven days of Nida are over, she has 11 days between one Nida state and another. Those, during those 11 days, the rule is basically if the woman sees Nida, she has seven days of Tumah. Then she has 11 days. After those 11 days pass, if she hasn't seen anything and then she sees again, it's a new Nida cycle, according to the Alakha. But if during those 11 days she sees something, she can become a Zava. Nowadays, as we've mentioned and learned many, many times before, we treat all women as Zavot, just to be careful. Because we don't keep track of the seven and 11 cycle and all of that. But if she saw Nida, and then after the seven days, during the 11 days, she saw one day of the 11 days. She becomes what's called Shomeret Yom Keneged Yom, which means she has the stringency of Tum'ah, Ave Zava, for one day, but she goes to the Mikveh that day, and by the end of the day, she's done. She doesn't have to worry. Now, if the next day, meaning if the next day she, uh, uh, she only has to count one day, the Shomeret Yom Keneged Yom, but if she uh, sees already uh, three times, then she becomes a Zavagdola, and she has to count seven clean days. But you see that even just seeing one day, um, even though she doesn't have the rule that she has to do Svirat uh, Shiva, she doesn't have to do seven days. She just needs the one day to become Torah again. So, and yet her, the Tum'ah is very severe. She has the Tum'ah of Mishkavu Moshav, that if she sits on a seat very high up, anything under that seat will also become Tamei. Um, and so uh, you see that, uh, that just because she doesn't have to count seven days, she's just meaning she saw the blood and then the next day she can already become completely Torah by the next day. Um, and yet she still has the severity of the Tumah. So it could be the same thing by Azab that saw two Re'iyot. Maybe he doesn't have to count seven days. So you shouldn't be surprised that it could have been possible that Azav who saw two emissions would be very severely Tamei during that time, but wouldn't need seven clean days. That's why it says even somebody who has partial Zav status, meaning that he only had two emissions and not three, still has to count. Which teaches you that a Bal Shteriot, a Zav who had two emissions still has to count the full seven days. Why is it that here the word mizovo means that even a two emission zav is included in the halacha of counting the seven clean days? But the other mizovo that talks about bringing the korban, we said that excludes the 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 uh, zav that had only two emissions. Only the three emissions zav has to bring the korban. If you would say that this mizovo connected to the counting of seven days was actually to exclude the two emissions of, so the shtokramine, why does the pasuk even bother mentioning it? Right? Because if it said nothing, we would have assumed he didn't have to count the seven days. And if you're going to say it's logical, it must be that since the Zav's tomb is very strict, that means that he that uh, he must be counting seven clean days to get out of it. But we see that the lady who has a sees blood during her 11 days of ziva only needs one day to get out of it. And even so, she still observes the very strict Tum'ah. So maybe the Zav who saw two emissions observes the very strict Tum'ah but can get out of it after a day. How do you know that he needs seven days? 
Ve'lo minigo. So maybe you'll say the word mizovo is necessary because we had to learn, like we said before, that mizovo, uh, that, if, that if, his, if he is ready to start his clean days of uh, ziva, even though he is still a, 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 a mitzorah, it's okay. Right, it could have just says when when the zav became pure. Right, and being quiet. Why do you need the word mizovo? That even a zav who saw only two emissions still needs to count the seven clean days. In other words, basically what he's answering him is that if the Torah didn't want to include here and wanted to exclude, it would have done it by silence. By not saying anything, you would have assumed that the zav who saw only two riyot was not required to keep the seven uh, clean days. Um, and it would be more similar to Shomer Yom Keneged Yom case. So therefore, the Torah comes along to tell you that no Mizovo, meaning that even if he had a partial uh, Zav status of two Riyot, he still has to keep the seven clean days. And you'll say, well, what about the fa- Maybe that extra Pasuk isn't coming to include the Zav in the extra seven clean days. Maybe it's coming to just to tell you that the Zav's Tum'ah and the Tum'ah of Tzarat are independent and one can be resolved without the other. It says you wouldn't need the word Mizovo for that. That comes from the word V'chiyetara uh, Zav. That's it. That the Zav became pure. So you wouldn't need Mizovo except to teach you to include the two emission zav in the category of zav for the purposes of counting the seven clean days. Now the next Mishnah says, "Ein mitzora The only difference between a mitzora that is quarantined and a mitzora that is established, a definite mitzora, is that he is the priyau prima, the growing of hair long and the tearing of garments. The only difference between the uh, person who is who comes out of quarantine for Torah and the person who had Torah is whether he has to do the shaving and bring the birds that the Torah requires as part of the purification process of the Mitzvah. Now what this is talking about is that when we read the Halachot of Torah, especially in Parashat Tazuyah, and a little bit in Parashat Mitzvah as well, we learned that, um, that basically a person who has certain symptoms that seem like Torah has to be quarantined for a week and then quarantined again and, and, and determine whether if anything changes, they become a definite Mitzvah that's called Mitzvah Mukhlat, or they're just a Mitzvah Musgar, which means they're quarantined, but in the end they're released simply because the condition didn't get any worse. So therefore the assumption is that they are not Mitzvah. Okay, so somebody who is, not, who is only a quarantined Mitzvah doesn't have to grow his hair long and doesn't have to tear his garments. Similarly, somebody who comes out of quarantine doesn't have to bring the shave his whole body and bring the bird korban and so on for the purification because he didn't actually have tzorah. It was just a quarantine as opposed to the person who definitely was a confirmed mitzorah. That's what the Mishnah says. But when it comes to sending the person out, in other words, that they're isolated, they're not allowed to be in the camp and their tumah is very severe, the mitzorah musgar and the mitzorah muchlat, even just the quarantine mitzorah that doesn't have definite tzorah, the tum'ah that they convey is the same. Where do we get this from? Rav Shmuel Bar Yitzchak came to Rav Huna. Rav Shmuel Bar Yitzchak said the name before Rav Huna. When it talks about the Kohen purifying the person because it's mispachat, it's not really tzorat. He releases the person from the quarantine. So what happens then? It says, He should wash his clothes and become tzor. So, But it says, which sounds like the past tense, which means that he was already pure from the obligation of growing his hair long and from tearing his garments from the beginning. In other words, the word vitahir is a funny form of the verb that they're saying means from the past, that he was already tahor in certain respect from being a mitzvah because this, this uh, quarantined guy never really was a mitzvah and therefore never really had to go through those 
procedures of the tearing of the garments and growing of the hair. We have the same language by Ezav where it says he washes his clothing and he becomes Taor and you're saying that means past tense. Over there, what kind of Vitaher in the past tense is relevant? So it says, What it means is that starting now, if that Zav touches uh, uh, or moves, uh, earthenware vessels, they will not become Tamei anymore. Even if on the same day, he then sees Ziva again. So his whole purification ended up not really being valid. It was undone because then he saw Ziva again. He's not going to retroactively. So in other words, this guy was released from being a Zav. He goes, it was the seventh day of his clean days. He goes and he's handling all kinds of vessels. Then, then he has another remission, which basically invalidates his counting and so on. Now, everything he touched that whole day, you might say, should now be tame because he never really had stopped being a zav. The answer is no, he stopped being a zav at that moment. And uh, after he did his immersion and his purification. And uh, the retroactive tumah does not apply. Same thing. That if this person was released from quarantine and then they go into a house, and normally if a mitzvah comes into a house and he's under the roof of the house with other items, they all become tamay. But this guy just got released from quarantine. And then later that day of quarantine, it turns out he does have tzorat. It, it gets worse. And the Kohen pronounces him to have tzorat. The place that he went in the middle of the day doesn't become tamay because at that time he had been released from quarantine and not confirmed as a mitzvah yet. This is where we get the idea that there's a difference between a quarantined and a, um, so, so that word vitaher doesn't tell us anything about the idea that a quarantined mitzvah has a lesser obligation than a definite mitzvah. But he says, that when it describes the mitzvah who has to grow his hair long and tear his garments, it says the tzorah that has the condition, which means we're talking about there, somebody whose tarat actually is related to their body. Because the person who is in quarantine is just waiting a certain amount of time. He's waiting it out to see if the condition develops. He doesn't actually have the condition. Whereas the person who has the condition, it says he has to cover his head, tear his garments, grow his hair long. That's only for the person who has it in their body. According to this, it says that all the days that the nega is in him, that the condition of tarat is in him, he is to make. So that implies that only somebody who the tzawat is actually inhering in their body needs to be sent out because of the tumavish. And that the person who the tzawat is just a quarantine, it's not a literal tzawat, it's just a waiting period, shouldn't require being sent out, shouldn't convey any tumat. And maybe I'll say that's true, but we lived in our wish There's no difference between a quarantined suspected mitzawat and a definite one. Except that the one who is only quarantined doesn't have to grow his hair long and doesn't have to tear his garments. But with regards to sending them out into a type of an isolated place and uh, the fact that they create Tumah when they come into a house, they're the same, right? So it's not true that a Mitzvah Mukhlat and a Mitzvah Musgar are different with respect to the Tumah. They're exactly the same. And so, so what about the Pasuk that says all the days that the Nega is in him, he creates Tumah? That's not true because you said that when it says the Nega being in him, the implication is that it's talking about a confirmed mitzvah only. But here we see that the halachot of Tum'ah apply to a doubtful mitzvah as well. Amar lei, he said, Because it says, If it says, 
that the days that the nega was in him, he would have to be sent out and he would be a source of Tumah, then fine. But it says, call you may all the days. But if that's the case, then why doesn't the quarantine, the mitzvah, have to also shave his whole body and bring the bird korban? Because we learned in the Mishnah that there's no difference between a person leaving quarantine versus a person leaving real Torah, except whether they have to shave their whole body and bring the bird sacrifices. Because when it talks about a person being released from Torah, uh, quarantine and isolation, it says that the Kohen goes out to the person outside the camp. That we see that the Nega Torah has been healed, that the condition has been healed. So only somebody who actually has... Um, Tzorat could say that his Tzorat is Tluya Berfuot, has to do with becoming healed, right? Whereas a quarantined Mitzorah, it's not about healing, it's just about matter of days, a matter of passage of time before he'll be released from the quarantine that was seven days or sometimes two sets of seven days. But the idea is that the Pasuk says that the person who's bringing the offerings and shaving his whole body is somebody who was healed from Tawat, but somebody who didn't actually have the bodily condition and was just quarantined for a technical reason would not have to bring the Korbanot and would not have to shave himself. And that's the conclusion of this stuff.